This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, February is Heart Month, and the Heart and Stroke says Canadians don't fully understand the impacts of heart disease. Registered nurse Opal Demeray with Heart and Stroke details a new report from the organization that shows the flaws in our awareness about heart disease and our heart health. The James Webb Telescope has officially been deployed. It is officially parked, and it's time to find some aliens. Greg Fish joins us to help us understand how researchers hope to use this crazy, powerful new telescope that's in space about a million miles away to help find new worlds. Plus, do alien planets look anything like how we imagine them to be similar to Earth? Are you okay with naming snowplows? It has happened, and it's genius. All of this and more coming up on the Shift Daily Podcast. This is the Shift Podcast. Are you okay with bumper stickers? Are you okay with bumper stickers? Seems old. Um, yes, because there is a market for bumper stickers for millennials, and they are absurd. I saw a bumper sticker that said, my cat is a communist and there's nothing you can do about it. And then beside that, there was a picture of a possum wearing a cowboy hat, and it said, lessons from a cowboy, be rootin', be tootin', by God, always be shooting, but most importantly, be kind. I I like cried. I was laughing so hard. It's just the most ridiculous thing ever. Someone's like, I'm going to put this on my car, and I, I'm all for it, 100%. I have two questions for you, young millennial. Hit me. Hit me. How close do you drive behind the car to be able to read or that bumper sticker, or is it gigantic? I got out two. and ran and stared at it. Okay. <laughs> two... Where exactly does a millennial put a bumper sticker when they don't drive? Well, see, now that's me. I got bumper stickers all over my room, various radio stations and bands. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I've got like 100 million C Fox stickers. So, yeah. (laughs) They're just behind me in a big box. So, if you want some, I got some for you. (laughs) The the technology has changed on the sticker, which is good news because now you can take them off with a little bit of heat and a razor blade, as opposed to the old days when mm-hmm. it left all the residue and it needed some gooby gone to, to get rid of it. Bumper stickers can show their support for a cause or a joke like Ryan's uh, that he loves, the uh, small short essay that was that bumper sticker. But this mm-hmm. bumper sticker has a very good cause. It reads, don't carjack me, kids inside. Oh. Wow. Wow. So... The mother of four from Uptown New Orleans has created a magnet and stuck it on the back of her car. It reads, don't carjack me. Kids inside. And they, this is the reason why. I'm not anybody that has any kind of political power. I'm not in law enforcement. But Gabriella Barnitzer is a mother of four. That includes four-year-old triplets. And it takes a long time to get them in and out of car seats. And with a gun to your head, I can't imagine having to go through something like that. And the recent string of carjackings across New Orleans got her thinking. And so it's either stay silent or, you know, my only idea was to make a magnet. So a magnet is what she made. It reads, don't carjack me, kids inside. She stuck it on the family car and made some for her friends, too. Then she shared photos of the magnet on Instagram, and pretty soon a bunch of parents were requesting them. It's leaving an impact Barnitzer can only describe as magnetic. More than making it for a deterrent to make people not do it. It was more to make a statement about the craziness of what's actually going on. Uh, so she's created the magnet. Her name is Gabriella, and she plans to sell them for 10 bucks. I think she's underselling it. She could get 20 for sure. Proceeds will go to extracurricular programs in lower-income areas. She hopes to keep kids out of jail, help keep them the support they need. I have a question. That was from WS, uh, DSU, by the way. I have questions about that one too, Ryan. Uh, okay. How many carjackings happen on a regular basis to a point where you're inspired to put a sticker on your car? In New Orleans, there was an it's an insane amount. Just as many, really? like for reference, you know how San Francisco uh, and and a lot of towns in California have been just hit with mass uh, shoplifting, like just mm-hmm. an ag- aggressive amount. It's like that, but carjacking in really? New Orleans right now. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, weird. Well, um, uh, most parents would say. Please carjack my car, kids inside. And how many parents have said, 
to their kids. I might be included in that when talk about getting kidnapped or whatever. I don't want to get kidnapped, Dad. Don't worry. They'll bring you back in a couple of hours. Trust me. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so many parents. That's a good parent joke. They made parent jokes. Uh huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, for two people who are not parents, we think it's a little harsh. But I bet yeah. every parent listening right now is like, "Oh, he gets it." That's, oh, that's okay. The, but that's the kind of stuff that you tell your therapist when you're like 45 on lying on yeah. the couch. Yeah, I suppose. But I mean, there's not a parent who's listening right now who hasn't thought that. So it's not that far offside. Okay. Uh, are you okay with? Snowplow names. Are you okay with snowplow names? Yes, yeah, snowplow. I don't know when this started. I think it can probably all be traced back to when the British government asked people to name that icebreaker, and it was named mm-hmm. Bodie McBoatface by the mm-hmm. public, which is just delightful. And now we name everything stupid mm-hmm. and funny. And I just imagine of uh, these l- incredible workers who get in their truck and. What's their truck's name? Just like a bumper sticker right on the back that says Plowy McPlowface. Yeah. Delightful. And that is actually so okay one of the names. That. In Calgary, so they named, they opened it up to students to be able to name snowplows in Calgary. And uh, here are some of the names that came out of this. Okay? Can't, ready? I'm ready. I'm not going to read them all. Ready. And I'll sort of bang them all off because uh, they're fantastic. They're sort of in alphabetical order. Abominable snowplow. Oh, Very good. Wonderful. Good. That's a wonderful. Big name. friendly plow. Very oh, kind. Come on. Like that too. The Blizzard Blaster. The Blizzard of Oz. The Blizzard oh. Wizard. Whoa. Um, this one received quite a few votes. Bob. Oh yeah. No, that's Just great. Bob. Yeah. Bob, Bob the Plow. Yeah. Bonhomme de Neige. Mm-hmm. This the snowman. Yeah. The Brinestone Plowboy. <laughs> I like that one. No, that one wins. That's delight. So yeah. Now th- that's a bit of a that's a different joke, not for everybody, because not every uh, place uses brine, uh, like beet brine, uh, to salt mm-hmm. instead of salt on the roads. Uh, it works differently, different temperature thresholds, and all that stuff, and has to be applied in advance, I believe. Um, versus salt that's piled on in other locations, and uh, uh, that also takes me down to the pickle. And there was one that was named, I'll jump ahead, Pickle, because of Pickle Mix, which they use here in southern Alberta, which is like a gravel, which cracks every windshield around um, and puts rock chips in the front of your car. But so the Brinestone Plowboy and Pickle, a little bit geography located there. There's the Calgary Plower, like the Calgary. Oh, like the, yeah, 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 I like Mm -hmm. that. The Calgary Snow Flames, there's Chinook, there's Chippy. Uh, see also pickle for chippy darth blader <laughs> hello that's, that's oh there's also a snow destroyer like a star destroyer that's right good. there you go uh double trouble shovel the eiffel plower <laughs> i like that uh this one is one of my favorites fast and flurious Ooh, very good oh, that's good there's a snowstorm coming to toronto later today all the way through friday that um, there's like 600 plows so you need 600 names toronto uh, for your ice only, that's cute. Frostbite, Frosty nice. the Snowplow, Frozone, <laughs> Gordy Plow, very good. Oh yeah. Uh, gritty Gritty Bang Bang, Icebreaker, Kaplow. <laughs> um, there's a couple in other languages that I don't understand. Uh, Let it snow, Lizard Snow Grabber, Marta Scoop. There's a neighborhood Marta in Calgary Scoop. called Malta Loop. Uh, Marshmallow. This is one of the best ones. Melton John. <laughs> That's a good one. Okay, That's my favorite so yeah. far. Mm-hmm. Uh, mittens. There is Mr. Snow, which the submission was actually uh, Monsieur Neige. My Fair Blady. <laughs> <laughs> Names for snow plows from Calgary from oh. students. Oh, I found one. What's that? Hmm. Salt Bertasaurus Rex. Oh. Because the Albertosaurus. <laughs> And like this it. one's actually my favorite so far. You're a blizzard, Harry. Instead of you're a wizard, Harry. <laughs> uh, oh, snow, you didn't. Plow patrol, plow a bunga, plower power, plowy McPlow face, plowzilla, polar patroller, princess slayer. It's <laughs> <laughs> good. There's a the lot of Star Zamboni. Wars ones here. Oh, this oh, is yeah. good. Rocky Mountain snow plow, uh, Rex. Schnief, 
Schniepflug, Rex Schniepflug, snowplow, translated. Uh, there was uh, indigenous language, I don't know which one, but for Chinook, which is cool. Snurplow, Surplow, mm, Sir Snows a Lot, Sled mm-hmm. Zeppelin. Oh, I love it. Sl- these are so good. I, I, it's a long list, but these are so good. There's Slushy, there's Snow Problem, Snow Angel, Snow Buster, Snow Cone, oh Snow God. Destroyer, Snow Job Too Small, Snow Monster, <laughs> Snow Place Like Home, uh, Snow Be Gone Kenobi. Oh, yeah. oh my God. <laughs> no way. <laughs> Snowy McSnowface. Sparkles, Sprinkles, Super Truck, Susie Snowplow, Sweet Child of Brine, The Penguin Plow, The Plowtipus, The Winter Sprinter, The Wow Plow, and The YYC Plowers. Snowplows, names of snowplows from students uh, in Calgary. It's beautiful. What an amazing list. That's creative, man. I like that. Absolutely. Are you okay with Ground Hizzlehog Day? Oh, I see what you did there. Um, I don't know. Not, I don't really care. <laughs> like, it's kind of like, oh, he, oh, he didn't see. He saw the shadow. Oh, okay. I, um, well, all right. I, uh, hey, first of all, don't diminish someone else's job just because you don't get it. Ooh. The groundhog. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I did have this really bad idea that I thought we should do like five minutes of content starting like today and just repeat the same five minutes of content over and over again and see if anybody got it. Oh my God. Yeah. I thought that would be funny. Uh, but you know, we do sort of get paid on having people listen. So didn't know if that was going to work out our best benefit. Yeah. I just have to keep hitting play anyway. Like you guys could leave. I could yeah. keep hitting play on the five minutes. I still yeah, have to work. All right. Uh, I don't know. I like Groundhog Day. It's fun. Usually there's pancakes. It derives from the Pennsylvania Dutch superstition that if a groundhog emerging from its burrow on this day sees its shadow due to clear weather, it will retreat to its den and winter will go on for six more weeks. If it does not see its shadow because of cloudiness, spring will arrive early. And just one day before the strange holiday, the mascot for a town that takes this very similar passed away. February, hundreds of onlookers flock to the American Legion Pavilion trying to catch a glimpse of local celebrity Milltown Mel, hoping the giant rodent doesn't see his shadow. The shadows have fled. Brighter days ahead. But this year, Groundhog Day just won't be the same. The borough's beloved fixture has sadly passed away. And without Mel, there won't be a celebration, at least for this year. And we just said, you know what, we just can't do it this year. You can't do it the day before. It takes a lot of planning. Milltown Mel's death was announced on Facebook in a short note reading in part. We are sad to report that Milltown Mel has crossed over the Rainbow Bridge. We tried everywhere to get a stand-in, but to no avail. It's a tragedy. It's a big thing in Milltown, like the 4th of July. This is it's a huge event here. and We get people from all over. He's just more local. He feels like he's ours. So he'll be sadly missed. The annual tradition was started back in 2009 by the former owners of this local funeral home. But Mel has lived on its property since 2017. (laughs) Oh, Oh, that's a strange twist, isn't it? I thought you might like that. Oh, God. Okay. Um, first of all, uh, let's, the poor groundhog. I mean, first of all, they drag them out of the little burrow into the cold. Second, how awkward is that when they pull out Milltown Mel and <laughs> he's got a rigor mortis? Um, that report was from Fox 26. Now, there's quite a bit of comp- competition inside all of this. Ponxatawney Phil is a more famous groundhog out of the States. Milltown Mel's handlers claim they have a way better record of predicting when spring will come. Had, I suppose, probably being the Oof. key word on that. <laughs> I bet you, I bet you Phil gets it more accurate this year than old Mel. Well, yeah, you never know. Balzac Billy is five minutes away from where I am. So, Balzac Billy's the best. Of all the groundhogs. Do you believe it, though? Do you have any faith in the in the mm. shadow? No, I don't. I'm sorry. No. I have more attachment to Shrove Tuesday, to Pancake Tuesday, than to Groundhog Day. Right. As a devout 
reader of Carl Jung, I think it's important to look into your shadow. Ooh, wow. I don't know oh. if the audience will get the Whoa. deep philosophical, psychological, That's, analytical, psychological great. joke, but, you know. I love it. Um, and not only that, I mean, I would say I love to believe it when it's spring is coming sooner, and I don't believe it when winter is lasting for six more weeks. This is the Shift Podcast. February is heart month, not just in the shape of pizzas and valentines, but ties in really nicely to the message of taking care of ourselves a little bit better. And isn't that really what it's all about? You know, I mean, when we talk about weight and exercise and all those things, I don't know about you, but one of the things that is very easy to get across is, hey, look, I'm not climbing up your tree for no reason. I look forward to having a long life with you. That's it. I got I got plants. We got stuff to do. All I'm asking is that we uh, make some decisions that help us feel better and live a little bit longer. Uh, that's a fair ball to your friends, isn't it, Opal? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Opal Demaray is Senior Manager of Health Systems at Heart and Stroke uh, and a registered nurse as well, which brings, uh, must that must bring in an extra level into the conversation, hey, when you've, you are a registered nurse, you've been through all the training and, you know, you've kind of seen it. So now you get to get into the conversation about prevention. Absolutely. That's one of the reasons why I um, was so happy to work for Heart and Stroke was to be able to look at different things like heart failure across Canada, really. Still the biggest? Is it still the biggest? Like Is the biggest that- thing that really kills us and makes us sick? Heart failure, it's one of the fastest growing cardiovascular conditions across the world. So it's definitely important for us here in Canada. Um, Age groups. Can we talk about age groups first? I mean, it it is everybody now, but there are some real hot spots in age groups just for the sake of throwing it out there. Because I really would just to be honest, I want to get everyone's attention if they Mm -hmm. are in that age group. Do you can you give us some ideas of, you know, um, all of these pieces? Uh, What are the age groups that we're looking at? Yes. Although heart failure can, uh, any age, it doesn't discriminate. You can have anybody, but it definitely is more uh, common and more prevalent in the uh, older age groups. So as we start getting into elderly, um, we do definitely see an increase in heart failure diagnoses in the older older age groups. Mm -hmm. Anything that um, can damage your heart can lead to heart failure. So as you can imagine, as we're getting older as a population and as we're having more things uh, crop up things like heart attacks, high blood pressure, uh, we're going to start to see more heart failure diagnoses down the road. Yeah. Uh, I would imagine that's been a big thing, especially over the last couple of years. I mean, I don't know about you, but as I go through my day, you know, uh, two years later, I do process all the things differently, let alone the physiology of, you know, clot things running through my veins, um, stress and pressure and all those things, still uh, very important factors in all this. Absolutely. All of those things are so important to stay attuned to, listen to your body, um, get regular health checkups and take care of yourself. Uh, And those types of things, uh, heart attacks, as you were mentioning, or high blood pressure can definitely end up leading to heart failure down the road. Mm -hmm. Um, It's my technical terms, floaty things in my (laughs) hands. Tell us, so you you are the expert here. Clearly, I am not. Tell me about this new report. in and around heart and stroke and what's coming out here for February. What do we need to know? So uh, the reason why the heart report, why the reports come out in February is that February is heart month. And so heart and stroke is focusing on heart failure for heart months. And a lot of our recent work has uncovered that we have um, a lot of work to do as a country to have a better system to look after people living with heart failure. So that's what this this uh, report is focusing on is some of the findings that we've recently uncovered and where the areas are that uh, we as Canada and as, as Canadians need to focus on um, to do better and improve the lives of people living with heart failure and prevent uh, people from the diagnosis in the first place. Um, you said something that I think is people are going to, um, it's going to catch them because you said living with heart failure. Now, I've experienced it in my family, and most people don't think that way. They don't think, well, if your heart failed, how is it possible um, you're still here? So my understanding, and uh, correction, please, is you know, heart failure is a lot of things. It is literally like the switch, turn off, uh, good night. And then there is also the stress, the pressure, the fluids, the um, 
your heart's working. It's there and it's functioning, but it's not doing enough to move the blood and the oxygen. There's all kinds of layers to heart failure, isn't it? Absolutely. And you are not alone. Uh, Heart and Stroke recently did a poll uh, nationally and found that a lot of people don't understand what heart failure is. So that's another reason why it's so important to get a better understanding of what it is, as it affects so many people living in Canada. Um, heart failure itself is a it's a chronic condition where the heart muscle um, doesn't function as well as it should. So it doesn't mean that the heart stops beating like what some people think, um, but it also means that it, it is incurable. There isn't one one. Um, solve all cure that comes with it. Uh, what it leads to is uh, not pumping the blood effectively to the rest of your body. And then you can have a whole bunch of symptoms that come from that. So some of those being a lot of fatigue, you can get swelling in your legs and in your abdomen. Um, you can have some shortness of breath that comes with that. Um, all of these things can be incredibly stressful as well as you can imagine both living with it yourself, but also looking after a loved one that has heart failure. Yeah, what I've seen um, in my experience, it's the oxygen people, right? Like they're they're on oxygen all the time because they're they they need to raise oxygen levels because the heart's just not moving enough of that you know precious oxygen to the brain. That the can definitely be a component of it. The medical management of heart failure is is fantastic. There are a lot of things that we can do to help support people improve their their quality of life, um, but it's complex as you can imagine. Like oxygen is one component of it and there's a lot that that we can do in different areas that require a fair amount of uh, coordination and resources so how are we uh how are we failing at this because i know that some of the conversation is there are there's a long list of ways we can go better uh do this better in educating ourselves and uh can you give us some of the specifics opal to help us understand how heart failure uh, becomes more avoidable with some changes in our country and in our lives Yes, absolutely. I'll start with, um, I guess, on an individual level. So in our lives to, to try and avoid heart failure is actually pretty basic when we think of just cardiovascular diseases in general. So things like healthy eating and physical activity that are going to help prevent us um, from developing some of those conditions I was mentioning earlier, like heart attacks or high blood pressure. Those on an individual level can help prevent um, stuff leading towards heart failure. On a national level, as a country, uh, as a healthcare system, we have quite a siloed healthcare system for heart failure right now. Um, and somebody who's living with heart failure does require care in many different areas. So um, to answer your question about how we're failing that, we need to coordinate, we need to work together, we need to integrate and um and move forward on essentially a national action plan, which is what Heart and Stroke is doing right now, uh, leading and collaborating with other big national organizations to improve those gaps and help um, bring better care to people in Canada living with heart failure. One in three people are touched by heart failure in some fashion. Um, you know, the the care. I always have a hard time. You know, you're you're a registered nurse by your trade before this, so mm -hmm. this is a hard one because I need to be distinct. The people who provide the care are special people, so special, almost so special that they almost enable the failures because they just they'll, they'll do whatever it takes to make sure everybody's okay. But when it comes to healthcare, um, you know there are some pieces inside. The design of the healthcare, the way they go about it with the, the, the bigwig people, that's, those are my words, that doesn't necessarily give those, those workers in the trenches, the doctors, the nurses, support people, admin staff, the tools, or at least the clarity to yeah. get there. And that's, that's evident in this conversation, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, um, as a nurse, I would see patients presenting to hospital uh, much sicker than they should have been when they were presenting. So um, it's really like our national action plan is really looking at areas to improve. Um, how do we provide those those types of specialized uh, healthcare professionals that you were just talking about earlier? And how do we have a more equitable healthcare system so that it doesn't matter where you live or it doesn't matter um, what your background is or what other barriers might be in place that everybody in Canada who's living with heart failure has access to the same specialists that they, um, that they should when they need them. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't know what we don't know. And that's very uh present in this conversation is that not only is it not necessarily structurally available, but we don't even know it's a thing, let alone that we have to know we get there. 
Absolutely. Huh. It's kind of scary when you think about it, right? It it can be, but there is there is opportunity, and there's certainly a lot of work that uh, us at Heart and Stroke are doing right now to try and help improve that. Um, things like focusing on how we can increase uh, uh, research dedicated to help preventing heart failure, um, how we can advocate for some of the necessary components of care. So things like universal pharmacare programs for medications. There are a lot of a lot of good things going on that are are helping to improve the care. Yeah, that one uh, that one's been coming up more and more. Okay, prevention. Prevention's always the key, right? Hindsight. I like to hindsight is twenty twenty. If only we had known. Well, here's the opportunity to know the prevention of uh, things like high blood pressure. What else would be in there? I would guess cholesterol and the just threat of heart attack, let alone heart yeah, failure. Absolutely. Um, so how, prevention, I mean, how do we do this better? I mean, when it comes to us literally putting pasta in our face hole um, so we can eat, um, we need to know what it is that we're putting in our mouths. It probably starts there. Yeah, you're completely right. So things like healthy eating and having an active uh, lifestyle are going to be two of the main things that you can do to help prevent um, a lot of those conditions that lead to heart failure. So things like um, coronary artery disease or, or something that puts you at risk of a heart attack. Uh, heartandstroke.ca uh, has a lot of resources for healthy eating. So if you um, would like specifics on that, uh, visiting our website can help provide that information for you, as well as uh, active, active living tips and, and um, resources too. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, yeah, just going back to the basics, I think, is uh, the best way. Well, it is the best way to help prevent heart failure. And and what a hard conversation to have um, right now. I mean, this is not why we're here to talk about it, but inflation cost of food is, is changing in front of us very quickly. So it's a lot easier for you and I to sit here and say, oh, yeah, just go and eat more cleanly. Um, so this really is a all hands on deck. You know, the government's got to get involved. Um, there's gotta be, I've always t- wondered, you know, cigarettes is such a great example. You know, obviously smoking does contribute to this conversation too, but the mm-hmm. fact that cigarettes and the packaging of cigarettes, those ugly, ugly pictures in the front of, of cigarettes has not been applied to so many other products that are in the world has not been applied to alcohol. Um, I would imagine, you know, I don't know about you, but I love salty potato chips. Right. The last thing I want to see is a picture like that on the front of my salty potato chips. But a lot of us don't know. I mean, this, the the, the don't know what we don't know piece of this is so huge. There's got to be things that can be done when it comes to the grocery store. Yes. uh, Heart and Stroke has done an, um, is leading a lot of advocacy work right now with government uh, related to healthy eating. Our work on the heart failure action plan is more specific to working with government to advocate for uh, systems of care and, and gaps in care that we can focus on. But you're absolutely right. Healthy eating is such a big component of that and really kind of brings us back to the roots uh, when we talk about prevention. Can we talk about family? How much do we need to know about our family in this to um, start asking questions of our aunts and our uncles and grandparents and parents to learn more about the family tree? Is that a big factor? It is, especially when we think about the conditions that contribute to heart failure. So it is really important to know what you might be at risk for uh, from your own familial history. Absolutely. Um, one thing that we're learning too is that uh, there are a lot of people. There are a lot of people that that know about heart failure in the context, as you were saying earlier. One in three Canadians either live with heart failure or have a family member or a close friend that has heart failure, according to our, our recent poll. And so we know that it's there. People know that it exists. I, I don't think that uh, Canadians understand the next level, though. Again, uh, kind of what was uncovered in our recent poll is that they don't really understand what it means to live with heart failure. So a conversation around risk factors is a, is a great way to, to learn more on an individual level, as well as increase your understanding overall. You have a uh, couple of uh, double-edged swords that you get to have here. Number one, being a registered nurse, plus your experience with Heart and Stroke Foundation. Um, You've seen the people literally roll in, right, Um, with your experience. What's your personal takeaway here? I mean, what what do you just want everybody to know? Because I'm sure something comes to mind that is private that you don't need to share about your experience with a a patient, um, where you just kind of looked at that and you went, if only you knew, right, that... That yeah. 
that could have tonight would have been a whole lot different if only you knew whatever what is it that we need to know that we need to take away because you've seen the people I think trying to take this down to just only one thing. Yeah, well, um, you can say more than one. If every, you like. <laughs> I guess the first thing is that it's everyone plays a role in this. Like it, like I was saying, it's such a complicated um, condition to be living with that requires such a, a complicated system of care to support someone. So there isn't any one person that should be um, in charge of anything or, or held accountable to anything. Um, but definitely there are things that we can be focusing on to improve, um, especially diagnosis, earlier diagnosis. So that's what a lot of our action plan is focused on right now at Heart and Stroke is um, really looking at where the biggest areas for impact are that we can can put towards, um, put re- or that Canada can put resources and services towards improving. Um, I think if you're... And really the second piece too is that we really need to increase awareness of heart failure. So there's people in my nursing career that would um, come to hospital that are going through some type of uh, either new or exacerbation once they're living with it, that had they known more information about the actual illness itself, probably would have recognized the signs and symptoms earlier um, and fo- or potentially followed the direction of their healthcare providers uh, differently. And then uh, maybe we could have intervened earlier and, and helped improve their quality of life and their outcome. Yeah. And support the people around you who can recognize signs and symptoms too. Absolutely. I, I, you know, I would add that too, because the, uh, you know, the, uh, Hey, how you doing? You're all right. Uh, question is incredibly uh, valid. So before we leave here, Opal, um, February is heart month. Everybody needs to know that there is new research about that. We just don't get it. We just don't understand it. We don't pay attention to it. The burden. So I have a friend of mine that has a replacement valve in his aorta and um, it's been a lifelong journey for him ever since he was a tiny baby. So it's pretty normal go for him. But I remember uh, him sharing with me, he has a titanium valve now and how long it took for him to be able to go to sleep at night because he can hear the tick, 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 tick. Tick, tick, okay. of the valve. So that always, I always remember that when I was told that story. And I know that with, uh, with my family and what we've seen with heart failure, that, you know, when you feel, just feel doubtful, not confident. And, and like that we, we represent socially the heart as the core of us. We truly do. Right. Mm-hmm. When you're going to bed at night or getting up in the morning and every little, and we've been through this with COVID, right? Every little sniffle, you're like, Oh, but when it's your heart, yeah. Every little thing that feels weird, every little stutter of your heartbeat, every little uh, dizzy spell, uh, you know, not feeling right. The burden of that, um, not let alone the physiology of your body, but the emotional burden must be staggering. Absolutely. We, the impact of mental health that comes with heart failure is incredible, um, both for somebody who's actually living with it, as you were just giving that example, but for the person who might be sleeping in the bed next to that person. Yeah, you never know. Thinking morning, about it right? too. Yeah, yeah. it's it's uh, it's a lot, and uh, another reason why there's such a need for for different resources at different times. We do, if somebody's listening to this right now that's living with heart failure, that's looking for um, peer support resources, we do have communities. Uh, if you visit heartandstroke.ca slash connect, you can um, join some of our communities that can help uh, provide that peer support that we know can be quite quite powerful when it comes to trying to battle some of those, um, some of those uh, mental health burdens. Well, I can, I would leave it this way. Someone who has heart failure, they snore, say, right? They have the, they snore all the time. They, um, you know, they have a night where they actually sleep well and don't snore. That can be terrifying to the people around them, right? And um, it is as simple as that kind of living our lives conversation as well. It's it's not all fancy science stuff. It's worth noting. Absolutely. Scary. Yeah. Okay. Uh, heartandstroke.ca for resources and uh, all of the info on this regardless if it affects you today, it's one of those things that might suit you better to read it before versus it's like a map when you're going on a road trip, right? Sometimes you got to check out the map before your trip, not after you miss the turn, you know? I, I love that. I think that that's, that is com- 
very accurate. Very good. Uh, thank you very much. Senior Manager of Health Systems at Heart and Stroke and a registered nurse as well, Opal Demaray from Victoria. Thank you so much for sharing this insight. And good luck this month. I know it's a big month for you guys. And, and uh, success is defined in strange ways at Heart and Stroke Foundation versus the rest of us. But I do know that you guys work hard all year. February is over-the-top commitment to what you do. And thank you for doing that for all of us. Thank you so much, Shane. It's been a pleasure to be here. This is The Shift Podcast. Welcome to the world of weird things with Greg Fish. All right, Fish, you're going to have to top that for good news. I don't know what you got in your pocket for that today, but... Uh, okay, I'm going to go with aliens. How about that? Actually, depending on um, at what stage of the birthing process you're in, it look very similar, I would say. Wait, wait, say no, hold kids. on, hold on. I'm not, I'm not host to an alien parasite. I just want to make that clear. I know there have been <laughs> right? a lot of sure? doubts and a lot of questions. I get, I get that. I get that on a regular <laughs> basis. But no, I'm not currently hosting an alien parasite that's going to burst right. out of my chest. Nice. Well, this is that's encouraging. Thank you for that. Um, you wanted to look for aliens here through a telescope, worldofweirdthings.com. If you want to find Greg Fish online, there is a blog and a podcast there. So you can find uh, these articles specifically to what we're speaking to on there as well. Literally looking, I spy with my little eye, something that is alien-y. Yes, exactly. So the world's most complicated and expensive and high-stake origami project, the James Webb Space Telescope, is now deployed. It is parked in its orbit. It's aligning its mirrors, and it's going to start looking for stuff. And a lot of researchers want time on that telescope so they can look for something really interesting. And there is a group of researchers who are saying, you know what? This telescope would actually let us find alien life. Now, forget little green men and UFOs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We wouldn't actually be able to see that. Uh, but we might get just enough information about other planets where we could do something very, very interesting, which is detect the signature of an entire ecosystem. So it's not just huh. so much we're looking for, you know, we're not looking for ET, we're looking for signs of alien forests and alien swamps and alien biospheres. We're talking about entire planets that are alive in the same way that Earth is. I like ET, though. Can we not just find ET? This seems to be far more tangible to me. You know, if we can get ALF or someone to just sort of walk in and they're fuzzy, right? Uh, well, hey, the problem right? is... Well, the problem is they're very small, and the planets we're looking for are really far away, so we just don't have a telescope big enough. Maybe one day when we have a telescope big enough to, you know, like be the size of the solar system, maybe we can talk about that. But uh, no, the the issue really is that when you start looking at things like other planets uh, in space, the problem is the stars. Stars are very large and very bright, and planets are very small and very dim. So imagine that you're trying to find a desk lamp on the other side of the continent, sitting right next to a giant, um, to, to a giant lighthouse that's currently mm. active and and very and very uh, brightly rotating. Uh, right. That's that's what it's like looking at a planet. Now it can be done. There are tricks that have been done, and there are some very small, blurry images of actual planets around other stars. But they take a very long time uh, and very powerful telescopes to fully materialize. And uh, the James Webb Space Telescope would be able to, you know, have much better images. But by much better images, I mean rather than one or two smudge pixels, we might get six to ten smudge pixels if we're really lucky. Mm -hmm. But Here's the thing. That's enough to analyze the light that's coming through the atmosphere of that planet. And when sunlight, or I should say starlight in this case, passes through an atmosphere, all of the, uh, all of the chemicals give off a certain light. They act like these tiny little prisms, and they create a, a signature in the light that we can see and we can analyze in detail. Now, when we do that on Earth, we find some very interesting things. We find oxygen in the air, which is weird because oxygen is a very reactive gas. It should be gone in the atmosphere, out of atmosphere very quickly. It should only be present in trace amounts. We shouldn't have an abundance of it like we do today. Mm -hmm. Likewise, we also have ozone and methane in the atmosphere, 
next to oxygen, who are also extremely reactive gases. So all of these things being there and, and making up a, a significant percentage of the atmosphere, or at least a notable percentage of the atmosphere, uh, means that there is a biosphere that is, that is exhaling it as a byproduct of its metabolism. So hmm. if we look at Earth light, we will be able to find that exact thing. And we've actually have tried that with satellites. It, it's very it's very obvious that Earth has a very active ecosystem. If we point to other planets and we look at similar gases that we know can be products of respiration, we can say there's alien forests, there's alien swamps, there's a lot of alien bacteria, there's you know, there's there's definitely life there. And then we can kind of extrapolate to say that if we if there's enough activity that we see very significant amounts of these byproducts of alien ecosystems uh, being being uh, exhaled into the air, then that means there's probably something else that's living there, something that's more complex, maybe animal life, intelligent life. That's going to be very difficult to, to, to see. But then that gives us a really good idea like, oh, these are really habitable worlds. We can go and look at them in much more detail. You're proposing that we use these fancy telescopes to look for cow farts on other planets. Is that really what you're saying? Yes, or plant farts. Okay. Oh, interesting. Um, okay, so we look at our world. You know, we're so, man, we are so ungrateful for how complicated the ecosystem of keeping us alive is, right? What it takes with everything that we have in our world today. And we just take it all for granted, we just get up in the morning and we go about our business and, you know, the beauty of it all and the ecosystem, the synchronicity of the entire planet, you know, from millions and millions of years ago, getting to the place where we can live here and think and experience all of it. But we also look at this uh, from the complacency angle and yet that this is the only way you can possibly live. When you talk about life on another planet, when you say forests or whatever, we sort of look at it even when we, in the movies, we sort of look at it from that lens of kind of like Earth. Do we need to drop that filter and just say, we don't know what that's going to look like? Oh, yeah. I mean, forget about what those what those alien forces are going to look like. They might be they might have absolutely nothing in common the forests that we have now. You might not even have you might not have tall plants. It may be just this carpet of these these vast carpets of moss or these rocky structures that are made out of bacteria. You know, don't 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 think about, you know, jungles and forests the way that that we think of them. Um, there's also a very high probability uh, according to quite a bit of science uh, that the that these forests might actually be purple in color or black or red, oh, yeah. depending on the, depending on the star. Um, I was going to ask that too, um, because we often just assume that when we when we look at chlorophyll making all of our plants green, we sort of assume that that's the only way plants would be colored, uh, generally colored, if green for us around the world, where there could be a whole different version of chlorophyll that we don't even understand that's filtering um, gases or whatever in other planets? Well, we know that there's a, a version called retinol, which is uh, which we think was here on Earth before chlorophyll took over. And that has to do with the fact that the Earth kind of became a snowball for a while. And then when it fully thawed because of the bacteria that was then that, that kind of won the evolutionary race in that time, uh, had chlorophyll dominate, but on other planets, retinol is simpler, so it's very likely that it would dominate. Um, and then you also have to consider the light spectrum of the star around which the planet is orbiting. So you have uh, red, dimmer, red dwarf stars, which are um, probably, which are are definitely like the most um, popular stars in the galaxy, and they're probably the most likely star for a lot of habitable worlds. Um, and you're going to have plants that are almost pitch black, trying to capture every little bit of sunlight to, to process into energy. And you, you might have hotter stars where you have red vegetation to capture the infrared. Or you might have um, you might have different again. There's different colors for different spectra and different chemicals that we know would work. So and they're probably not going to look a lot like what we have here because uh, on Earth, because what we have on Earth is a product of many millions of years of evolution and mass extinctions and and rebirths, um, and there's going to be a completely different process that's going on uh, on on 
an alien planet. It's still going to be evolution, but the pressures are going to be different. The chemicals are going to be different. Um, the selective pressures are going to be different. Uh, so you're going to have a different result. It's funny that you say that. This is this is that complacency part. When you say retinol, which is retinol, not retinol, by spelling A-L, not O-L, uh, the place that most people will go to is the wrinkle cream, right? So that's the complacency. Look, we're talking chlorophyll is the, you know, which makes the plants green. Retinol with an A-L is the uh, chromophore, which is the, the simil- chemical, chemical transformation that you're talking about. I just Googled this. I learned this from you. Uh-huh. Uh, and But retinol... It's like the vitamin A for wrinkles. So that's how complacent we are. We would naturally go to, oh, that thing that made that planet work. We used a similar thing for our wrinkles, but it's not even similar. Yeah, no, a completely, completely, completely different thing. Fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. We don't really know life, do we? Like we often sit here and say, what's the purpose of life, Fish? Tell me, why am I here? And um, and yet we don't even know how we breathe to be well, to be perfectly fair, the reason why we're here is the most compelling one is probably because we are. I mean, that's kind of like if you want to get a little philosophical, we can we can look at it from the standpoint of kind of uh, optimistic nihilism, where we can say, you know, we're here because we're here. We can assign whatever meaning we want to our lives, and we can choose to make that positive and make the best of the fact that we're here. Or we can sit here and gaze into our navels and look for profound answers to questions that may not even be relevant. Because let's consider the fact that um, if we don't know why we're here, but we're desperately looking for a purpose, why not just make one? Well, that's what we do. We make meaning to everything. We add meaning to all the things. We put meaning on everything. We literally, I mean, and we create a belief system around it. So we put meaning on everything, right? Like the lightning flashes in the sky and we put meaning on it. The temperature goes up a degree. We put meaning on it. We do everything. We put meaning on everything. We need to put meaning on something as humans to feel like it matters. When really fundamentally, uh, you're a, you know, mammal and you're made of water. And one day you're going to be the dirt pushing daisies style. I mean, that's really fundamentally what it is. Well, I, I think we're talking about slightly different things because some of the meaning that, that, you know, when we talk about things like giving meaning to lightning, giving meaning to natural phenomena and trying to figure out why we're here, a lot of it, we've, we've created stories that we think explain these things. And then we decided, well, some of us decided that we're just going to stick to these stories because we like them and they make sense to us. And that's what Convenient. we're sticking with. Mm-hmm. So it's so it's a very convenient. Uh, it, it is you're right exactly. Is that's exactly what it is. It's nice and convenient, and I think when it comes to exploring space for looking at potentially alien forests or trying to to figure out how the universe works and and where it came from, like we're doing with all of these telescopes and with all of the scientific research into the dawn of the universe, the picture that it paints is very different to these stories. It really paints a picture of we're probably not super special in any way, shape or form, but we happen to be in the right place in the right time to learn some interesting things and maybe do some amazing things. And we need to kind of focus on, on that aspect of it rather than trying to figure out, um, you know, well, why exactly am I here? Am I here for a very specific purpose place here by X, Y, Z? Because the answer to that is probably not. Mm-hmm. I have a question for you about um, James Webb satellite or telescope. Um, we've heard over and over again about the L2 gravity well, and that's where it's parked. Uh, we've also heard that it has a bunch of fuel on board that's eventually going to run out after a bunch of years uh, to keep it parked there. So uh, it's a long ways away from Earth. What is the L2 gravity well, and why is it a well? So the L2 gravity well, it's it's known as the Lagrange point, and there's actually five of them. It's these are these points around the the Earth-Sun system that basically create a gravitational equilibrium. And if you launch things into that, um, in, into those places, the gravitational interactions between the Sun and the Earth are basically going to keep them about where they are. It's not going to be. It's not like this precise parking spot where they're just going to be like they're just going to sit there forever. 
but it's more like they're going to kind of go and spin around in tiny little circles. It's almost like um, if you if you think of it as kind of like a, a an eddy or a gravitational current, that's where they're kind of floating around. So the reason why they need the fuel is because every 23 days or so, they need to adjust themselves to still be exactly where they are in that current, but they're not going to stray that far away from it. It's very curious. I love that. I love the parking stall. Uh, since it is Good News Tuesday, Greg Fish, I'll quickly tell you a good news story that I saw today about a parking stall. Uh, thank you for the insight. Word of weirdthings.com for uh, this conversation around aliens. I like the metaphor you use, uh, or the simile, I suppose it was, of a lamp and a lighthouse and trying to spot the lamp uh, with that big, bright lighthouse there. I think that was really cool. Uh, so today I pulled up to Costco. And you know, parking stalls at Costco, I'm assuming you've seen one down in California. They're very, very big. There's lots of room to park there. There's no reason why you cannot fit your car in the parking spot at Costco. This guy pulls into the parking stall and he is way off to one side, crooked, everything else. Turns off the car. Passenger, I'm assuming is either his wife or his mother, tries to get out the passenger side, can barely get out, shimmies her way down very, very tightly, uh, to the side of the car. And I don't know what it was that she said. He got out. He was walking straight for the liquor store. Like it was that kind of, she ripped his face off to a level I have never seen. And now she's out of the car to the point where he got back in the car, backed it up and reparked the car. Um, and I say that's part of good news Tuesday because whoever was parked on that right hand side of the car would actually be able to get into their vehicle by the end of the day. But I admired it. And for anybody who's ever been in a relationship, that was like fierce moment of <laughs> get your crap in order. You are terrible. And, uh, she fixed it for everyone else around it. So there you go. There's your parking story. Greg Fish. Thanks for being here, buddy. Always a pleasure. Thanks for listening to The Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.